What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, we're back. It's Friday, so you know what that means. It is the three Atlanta natives, Garrett Chapman and Max Markovich, and myself, Chase you know Thomas, it. here on a gloomy friday afternoon not only in knoxville tennessee but also down there in atlanta georgia garrett good afternoon sir how are you i'm good chase how are you man i am good i'm good max what about yourself doing well wish wish the weather would clear up but other than that nothing nothing wrong it was 65 uh the other day and my run was perfect i think it was like tuesday i want to say i don't know if it was like that where you guys and then just immediately the next day down to 25 degrees and i was very upset. I'm ready for winter to be over. I'm ready to move on from uh, from winter time. But uh, it looks like we're still we're still gonna have it for a little bit. Um, I've decided on our name. I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but I've decided on a name. Okay. Okay. This is something that I spent a lot of time. I did the digging. I consulted with all the top marketing agencies. I watched a lot of Mad Men leading up to this decision, and <laughs> what I came to the conclusion of was. Why are we overthinking this? Let's just do Atlanta Sports Guys. That's what we're doing. That, that's what I've decided. Atlanta Sports Guys, it's the easiest one. I love it. I love it. It's like straight to the said, point. Kiss. Kiss. Keep it stu- simple, stupid. Exactly. exactly. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> all right. There we go. We're all on board. We got it. easy merch. Like, we'll eventually have some merch to move, and we can do all that kind of stuff. So, um, that's what we're going to go with, and that's what I, I, as long as you guys are good with that. Um, a lot of Atlanta stuff that uh, we've got to talk about. We need to start with the Hawks because you guys have been chomping at the bit to just tear down the point guard in Atlanta, getting fined, uh, just making him <laughs> make just making a fool of himself in the end of the Mavericks Hawks game, just getting really angry, pissing off John Collins on the court to make him look elsewhere for his new team. Um, what, 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 like, how do you guys feel about Trey Young and why both of you, Max and Garrett are just, are just so out on Atlanta's young superstar point guard? Wow. Uh, (laughs) that lead in was, was compelling. Um, I think there's only one of the three of us who might be out on Trey Young Mm -hmm. and I don't think it's Garrett nor I. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to push back. Like it's going to hurt my feelings the way you two talk about, uh, Cam Reddish today. And we'll get to that in a bit, but, um, in all seriousness, John Collins uh, doesn't look like he's long for the Atlanta Hawks. We've seen we, we we just thought this was coming when they traded for Clint Capella that like that was the failsafe because ultimately I don't necessarily agree with Max who in the text thread was telling us that he he is a fan. So I'm going to get to this in a second of the Capella yes. Collins pairing. Um, I thought the writing was on the wall there, and then the athletic story from friend of the pod Chris Kirshner outlining um, they're cool on the court, but are off the court, but they're not necessarily enjoying each other's company on the court. Um, I think this sentiment's probably the case for every player not named Trey Young on the Hawks, just my guess. Um, but 
Max, make the case for the Hawks not trading John Collins, paying him, and Clint Capella in today's NBA. Make the case. Yeah, yeah, you definitely put me in a hole there, but I'm excited to get out. Um, I would not say I'm a fan of, per se, of the Clint Capella-John Collins pairing. I don't think anyone would say that that is the ideal pairing for John Collins uh, to play with. Um, but I am a fan of John Collins, um, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to rattle off a few stats to illustrate um, that I think he's really having an underrated year um, and honestly quietly built together an underrated first few years in the NBA. Um, he's first of all, he's 23. He's got better every single year he's been in the NBA. Um, he's 40% from three now for the second year in a row, which sort of proves that that's not a fluke. That's real. Um, he's 19th in true shooting, 17th in offensive win shares, 24th in total win shares, 13th in Raptor, which I don't know what that means, but it's definitely something. Um, and his on off splits this year are, are ridiculous. I mean, they're, they're, um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but he's like above the 90th percentile in on-off differential in the NBA. Um, all of which is to say he's a really – oh, and, and, and one thing I want to point out is I think that there's like this complete misconception um, based on early in his career that he's like a total sieve defensively. I think he's been um, average at worst this year and honestly slightly above average defensively. And all the tools are there for him to be um, an above average defender for the rest of his career. Um, and all of that is to say that if you have a guy like that, I don't know why you're so eager to move on from him. Um, and I know the case that the fit doesn't really work, but um, particularly in the NBA where um, asset retention is just kind of everything, um, and the Hawks aren't going to recoup the value that he brings right now in a trade mm-hmm. um, if there was one, I would just pay him. I would keep him, um, and I'd be happy with that because he's one of the – better up-and-coming players in the league. Garrett, what do you think? So trading John Collins also runs you into a whole bunch of issues because, um, I mean, he has that rookie deal. Uh, he's in place right now. Uh, so that makes it very tricky. I mean, I don't want to get all too deep into the weeds as far as, like, salary cap restrictions and how you have to match offers or whatever. Um, but trading a rookie contract is it's already very complicated. But I think the Atlanta Hawks do see him on this roster. They wanted him on this roster. I mean, just this past offseason, there were a few reports that came out saying that they offered him a multi-year deal worth $90 million. So I think the real question was, do they see him as a max guy or not, which I guess they didn't. Uh, But they still have the restricted free agency. I still think he's – I've kind of grown cold on the idea of trading John Collins because, like Max said, I mean, the guy is very good. He plays good basketball. And I think the Hawks are at their best when he's on the court. Um, and I mean, I don't think that the Atlanta Hawks can compete in the playoffs, or for the playoffs, rather, if he's not on this roster, because he needs to be here. He's a focal point of this team, especially with all these injuries that we've had in other places on the roster. So I think he's still going to be on this team. I've cooled on the idea of him getting traded. I don't think he will. Um, and the, I think the report specifically said it was like they're listening to offers. So I think that all they're saying is like, hey, if you have a great offer, send it my way. So I don't think they're actively shopping him per se, because I think there are a lot of contenders who, who look at John Collins and say, that guy can help me win a championship this year. Um, so they're opening the door saying, hey, the, the door's unlocked. The door's unlocked, but I'm not going to open it for you. So I wouldn't be surprised if he got traded. I just don't think he will at this point. Interesting. I, I mean, I think he's going to get traded. I think this is... Something where it's going to get continually worse 
Um, cause what is his usage rate right now? And if you had to guess and like, let me see where he's at right now. Cause I want to, he's taking like, I think, I think he's taking like two fewer shots a game this year yeah. um, than last year. And if the Hawks um, continue to struggle, if they continue to flirt with 500 basketball or they go on a skid, they go on a four to five game skid, Collins, I, him asking out or him putting pressure on the organization to be like, get me out of here where I can play and be the max player that I think I am. I could see that. I could see Collins forcing the Hawks' hand. I don't think so, yeah, because I, he still has yeah. until the end of the season. I mean, he still has, this is still his contract here. Um, so, I mean, I don't see him trying to push his way out, per se, because he has the rest of his career after this this offseason. Um, now, of course, the, the Atlanta Hawks have the option of signing the to, to match whatever some other team signs him for, uh, just because he's a restricted free agent. But I don't, I don't see him pushing his way out. I don't know why he would do that all he has to do is be patient wait it out for a few months and uh, i don't see i don't see him actually requesting a trade formally and coming out public with it unless mm-hmm. things are much worse than we expect them than we think they are max yeah I don't, I don't i don't i don't think a trade um would be initiated from the hawks and um right now because i don't think you can say um hey our, like this is the year we, we make a playoff push like we have to make the playoffs which is their stated goal um, and have that be compatible with trading your second best player um, in the middle of the year, even if you are, you know, because honestly, like, how are you even on the outside looking in at any point this year because of the play-in tournament? I mean, you, you, even if they went on a skid here, they're in it. Um, they're they're in that hunt, and if that's their goal, they can't initiate a trade. So things would really have to become really bad um, in the locker room. Um, on the court with Collins, and he'd really have to sort of force his way out for me to see that trade happening. But then you get to the same point you were at last offseason, which is, do you want to max him or not? And I think it's pretty obvious the organization doesn't want to do that. Nor should they. Going He's to, not a max player. Like, is there any case for John Collins max player? We can like, we can discuss that. I, I I can see the argument. And okay, make the case. I would say I would say I would say that because there's a difference between like capital M max guys and like lowercase M max guys. And is John Collins like a capital M like superstar guy you build a team around as the first player? No. Um, but if the option is matching a max offer or losing him for nothing, that's a different conversation than does he, you know, is this his deserving pay? Because you also don't exactly get the cap space back um, given what he makes now. It's not, you just lose him for nothing. Yeah, but I think it's also just when you forecast, okay, so he was already upset about the contract failures from this, this past offseason, right? Like, he, he probably wishes that he got the extension and that he didn't have to go into this year on the one year, like the last year of his rookie deal, and then go into an uncertain offseason. Um, my guess is if you don't do anything and you let this play out, and then you go into the summer and just let John go and see what the best offer is. And then he comes back with like a max offer from like the magic or something. And then they match it. And he's like, you told me to get the best offer and now y'all are going to match it. And now I just, I'm cause it's not gonna be the money that he ultimately wants. It might end up being less than what the Hawks offered him reportedly before the season. So then you're at like just this nuclear situation of just really pissing this guy off because we know how this goes with restrictive free agency and like how annoyed teams get or players get at their teams for how they just view them in restrictive free agency. So most of the teams now, if they really value you long term, they are 
getting an extension done before you get to this point. And if they don't really value yeah. you long term, yeah. then they don't do this. So it's clear that they don't value him the way they value Trey or they value some of the other young guys on this roster and probably will. Um, that is something that John Collins obviously knows. And if they were to let him go out and get the best offer, it's kind of like when Gordon Hayward was pissed off that the Hornets uh, gave him the good offer sheet and he went back to Utah, that Utah just let him go see what was out there for him, let him go test the market. Most players don't want to go test the market as restricted free agents. Like it's kind of like a slap in the face and I don't see that ultimately going well. And then, you know, he, I, I don't know what his trade value is going to look like by next summer. Like, is his trade value going to go up or down if he keeps playing the way he is this season? Like, I, I don't know. I, I think this is a very oh, complicated situation. Up. You think so? If, oh, yes. I mean, if he keeps okay. playing the way he is, I mean, the guy has developed an outside shot that rivals that of, like, a shooting guard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, guy looks, the guy looks fantastic, and, he can, and he can, he's a power forward center. I mean, he's a young, bouncy player. Um, his, like Max said, his defense is a lot better. Um, but there's also one thing that you hinted at in, in, that, in what you were just saying, um, and that's Trey Young. And one thing that the Atlanta Hawks need to do is they need to turn the page and turn into a team that complete, competes for the playoffs because Trey Young is going to be a, a max with a capital M coming up. Yep. And, and yep. The, he's not going to re-sign with the Atlanta Hawks if, he's just, if we're just going to be the, a team like the Suns who continuously pick these these good players, and there's tons of them, but then we just turn them over, and then they all move on, or maybe they don't work out, or whatever. And Shout out Booker Dragon signed Bender. that big deal. Yeah, no, and, and Booker signed that big old deal, and they're still really kind of a middling team. They're finally starting to turn the page a little bit this year, but, I mean, he's, he's, he's going to want to play on a contender. He's going to want to win championships. That's the guy that Trey Young is, or at least that's what he says he is on Twitter. And by all intents and purposes, from all intents and purposes, I, that's what I see in him. Um, but why would he want to come back to Atlanta if we're just going to continuously be this middle of the road team who, like, maybe can make a push for the playoffs this year? Oh, and actually, now that we're in playoff contention, we're going to ship off our second best player. So, what are your goals exactly? Are you trying to make the playoffs, or are you just trying to? Are, are you still looking for the next two, three, four years? I don't know if Trey wants to be a part of that. So, and that's something that they have to keep in their, and the, at least in the back of their mind, because that contract's coming up pretty quickly. Yeah, and they're going to get it done as mm-hmm. soon as they possibly can. Whenever they are able to agree to the oh, max with Trey, they're they no, doing throw that. A, yeah. They'll throw a max at him yeah. as soon as possible, because he is the focal point of this team. He is this basketball team. Yeah, which, as I've made a point about, uh, not great. Uh, not not what I would have done. Not the strategy I would have done. Um, Max, any last thoughts on John Collins and what happened to you? Yeah, I think you both brought up really good points there. The Trey stuff, like that's going to become a real thing um, really soon, particularly if they don't make the playoffs this offseason. Um, but Chase, the, the point you brought up um, about how the Hawks have handled this, which I completely agree with, I think there's a discrepancy here between um, what the Hawks think and how, how the Hawks feel and how I feel and what I would do. Um, and it's clear the Hawks do not value John Collins, maybe the way that I'm expressing right now. Um, and so the stuff they've done in the past, like how they handled last offseason, is, is almost a different conversation to me. It's like you have sort of three options right now, and they are let things play out to the offseason, uh, trade in, or you know uh, match any offer that comes in this offseason, right? Um, and so I'm, I'm saying of all those options uh, – I'm maybe willing to overpay like 5%, 10% above what I think he is. But I'm not saying that that's what the Hawks are willing to do right now. 
No. And I think we'll we'll learn a lot more in the next few weeks. Um, this is going to be a very important time for the John Collins future um, experience in Atlanta and where, where he goes. Um, what were your big takeaways from the Mavs game this week, guys? Frustration, pounding my head against the wall. It was the most frustrating thing. And it's the same, same damn thing that's been happening all season. And it's when Trey comes off the floor which he did in the third quarter, you see a, a dramatic drop-off because Dunn came out on the floor because Rondo's hurt. Everyone, everyone's hurt. <laughs> and, so there's, and then Trey came off the floor, and Cam Reddish was on there, which we're going to get into Cam Reddish in a little bit, and he wasn't able to get it done. He wasn't able to be the point guy uh, as far as the chief scoring option. The Mavs just storm on back. Um, they rush Trey back on the floor. Uh, they take a lead again, and then they just fall apart because Trey plays 40 minutes a game, and and he's throwing up shots, and, and, and it just, oh, my God, and it's just so frustrated. I, <laughs> I'm still a little upset if you can't tell. <laughs> yeah. I, it, it's just going to be a frustrating season. I think I've just resigned myself to the Hawks just frustrating me all season long. I think this is who they're going to be. They're going to be nights where they're, everything's clicking and it makes sense, and there are going to be other nights like this where it's like, uh, this just it's, it's just not all there. There's just something not... Not right. Um, let's have the Cam Reddish conversation. Um, who wants to start this? Because I am going to take my headphones off, go into the other room, uh, light a cigarette, <laughs> and I'll uh, come back when y'all are done. Okay, I'll kick things off then. Um, I, God, it's such a tough conversation because I think coming into this year, we, we sort of grouped Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter together as these two promising lots signs of, of really good stuff coming um, with two promising wings um, and letting, trying to maximize their development, right? But if you take a step back now, and he's been horrible. I mean, he's been horrible all year, um, and there's really no other way to say that. And if we're talking about takeaways from the Mavs game, like I was saying, I was screaming, you know, I'd much rather see Solomon Hill or Tony Snell at this point. Um, and I don't know if there's any way around that. But if you take a step back at Cam Reddish's career now, um, if you, if you, and you can't do this, obviously, but if you cut out the last 40 games of last year, um, he's basically like a, uh, high thirties, um, percent field goal shooter for his career, um, including college. And he's basically a mid to high 23 point shooter. So if we're talking about promise for Cam Reddish, we're talking about 40 games or sorry, 20, um, whatever games last year that he was really good. I mean, he shot 47, 46% from the field during that span, 42% from three, um, showed signs of being a really able defender. Um, and it was like, okay, you know, you got a steal there at 10, um, and you've hopefully got a long-term starter. He just hasn't been that all year. And at this point, there's no reason to justify, like he has no business playing 29 minutes per game on a team that wants to make the playoffs. Like it just can't, it can't work like that. Yeah. I, well, yeah, go ahead, Garrett. Well, it's not it, it, like yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, like he shot forty plus percent from three pointer from from deep last year, like the last twenty five games. Where's that guy? What happened? I, I really have absolutely no idea because this year he's just playing into this ISO ball, and I think I saw something. It was like the the Atlanta Hawks are averaging like point two two points per possession when Reddish shoots out of an isolation. Like, what Jeez. what the hell is that? What is that? He's shooting 23% from mid-range. 
I mean, that, that's just, it, it's so frustrating to watch. And I, I'm also not a big proponent of iso ball. I think iso ball is one of the most frustrating things that I can ever see on the basketball court. And Cam Reddish, like, I, I give guys like James Harden or, or Kevin Durant or, or those guys, give those guys full credit. Those guys can go iso because they're just incredible. Cam Reddish is not one of those guys. He's not going to be able to hit these turnaround jump shots that he's been trying to take. And it's just very frustrating to watch. But at the same time, Max, I disagree with you on this. He needs to be on the floor because he need, he has to be out there. He's still in his second year, um, and you're just going to have to live with it for now. But I think it's it comes down to coaching. Lloyd Pierce has to put him in better positions. He needs to to set him up to take better shots. And if if he's taking these bad shots, then pull him out of the game, put him back in a little bit later, and then like hopefully coach him up in practice. Just cut his minutes a little bit. Like make sure he he's taking the right shot. I mean, I'm just frustrated with it. I mean. <laughs> As a counter to that, what is a good shot for Cam Reddish right now? Because I, I don't think they're catching two threes. I definitely don't think they're pick and roll, anything out of the pick and roll, period. Uh, maybe as a slasher. Like, I, yeah, I it's know. definitely like, a slasher. I, I don't see what a good shot. It's yeah, the backdoor cuts. It's it him eventually. cutting. It's him just looking for Trey inside and then drawing contact and getting used to using his body like that. Um, kind of like what Mikael Bridges does in Phoenix. I don't know if y'all saw 10 things from um, Zach Lowe today on ESPN.com, but one of his 10 things was um, Mikael Bridges turning into a 3 and D and D guy with the second D being um, driving, and that's like part of the development of going from good role player to great role player in today's NBA. And like, that is something Mikhail Bridges has added to his game is that he's just really good at driving and taking smaller guards with him uh, when they switch. And I think that's what cam has to do is when he is playing the two and gets switched on to smaller guards that he just drives and gets used to drawing contact and getting those runners and in the lane and drawing contact and finishing contact. But like I'm with, I'm with Garrett that you have to you have to play this out and you have to let him get the lumps. But also, when you have this playoff mandate, and this is why this team is so frustrating, is when you have this preseason playoff mandate, Lloyd Pierce knows that if he doesn't make the playoffs, he's fired. That like when you have this much pressure on this one year for this arbitrary thing of like we have to make the playoffs in a year where we're just going to get fucking curb stop by the nets or whoever in the first round like that it is it that makes the biggest difference in the world and the playoff revenue and all that kind of stuff but like ultimately i want to see deandre hunter cam reddish trey young john collins and clint capella play as many minutes together as possible and this is why i was always kind of wondering about the veteran signings was that like this is gonna supersede some of these wings that need to play and develop and like you're seeing the usage rate for these guys in the wing just not be there and now deandre hunter's out for a long time and he might not be right for the rest of the season. We'll see how he comes back. But, like, you <laughs> you can't have this multi-timeline type situation going on in Atlanta where you want to win now, but you also aren't comfortable with Cam Reddish being able to fail over and over again while he tries and figures stuff out. Because, ultimately, the Hawks' future is tied not only to Trey Young, but really the guy who was also a part of the Luka trade, Cam Reddish. And if you lose on Cam Reddish, you lost the Luka trade. If you win on Cam Reddish, then it's like, well, we have two all-stars and this is a thing. But the only way Cam's going to get better is by getting in there and failing. Yeah, yes, and I, I agree with a lot of what you said and disagree with a lot of what you said. I, I think that the concurrent timelines are weird. Um, and we haven't talked about Danilo Gallinari yet, but he's been – pretty bad yep um and shout out to that really air ball last night the uh that was our wednesday night that I was mean, great 
did not want to see him taking the last shot. I can tell you that. Um, no. But but I but I disagree on on I think um, and this gets into a Trey Young conversation that maybe we're not ready to have. But I think oh I'm ready. Of, Sign me up. I'm ready. I I'm back up. Okay. I have a my of, cigarette. I'm ready to bang the gavel. A lot of some of your assumptions about DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish um, sound like that you want the ball to go through them. Yes. Um, and, and I think I think that that's probably I think we've seen from wing development that that's the wrong way to go. Um, and I made a I made a comparison between DeAndre Hunter and Jalen Brown last week, um, and their age twenty two twenty three seasons have been like remarkably similar. Their stats are mirror images of each other. You can look it up on Basketball Reference. But the way that both of those guys were built, and I think is the right way to build up a guy like that, is from sort of the foundation out, right? So if DeAndre Hunter can be you know a decent three point shooter and guard certain types of players you can build off of that to now where he started this year and was pretty good out of pick and roll and could attack guys um, on cuts um, and was a really, he was really blossoming into what exactly what you want him to be. And I think that's the way you have to build up Cam Reddish too. It's not by putting the ball in his hands more and just hoping something good happens. It's about finding out what he's pretty good at starting there and then building out all the skills you can build from it. Um, and so that's where I think, I think maybe the Trey Young conversation is a little bit off base is that Trey Young at his best can be perfect for that kind of guy. And I think is perfect for DeAndre Hunter. Um, it just hasn't worked that way with Cam Reddish at all. Mm. Garrett, what do you think? I like where you're going with that. No, that's, a, that's, that's very good. I think you articulated that very, very well because I mean, the Boston Celtics did an exceptionally good job developing Jalen Brown. And, and I think guys like DeAndre Hunter could be that. And I think DeAndre Hunter, like you said, I mean, he has, like flourished in the system. Cam Reddish, I think he's trying to do something that doesn't work within the flow of the offense. And, and that's where I was really going with it, with the, the Lloyd Pierce frustration that I was having is, I mean, you got to keep him in this flow of the offense. You got to find his role. He needs to find that because if he doesn't get that role in the offense, he's not going to continue to develop. And then we're just going to be stuck with this guy who, and, and like you said, we could lose the Luca trade. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of over like the, those comparisons, but at the same time, it's like, it's still an important part of this team. He's an important part of this team and he needs to, to continue to develop and not and stop taking these bad shots. And I put that at Lloyd Pierce's feet. Yeah. I think that's also part of it is like the uncomfortable part of this too, is that I don't think Lloyd Pierce has done a great job this year. I, I have a lot of Lloyd Pierce questions um, about him going forward. Um, some Brett Brown vibes going on with Lloyd Pierce I think a little mm. bit and I I don't know I think this was already going to be a complicated year for him and he's having to juggle a lot but I don't think he's done the best job unfortunately and I I hope things turn around there but um I'm more on the fence about Lloyd Pierce's future in Atlanta than I was coming into the year um mm-hmm. is there any last thing that you would like to uh we, that you think we should mention about the Hawks right now that we have not touched on yet uh, yeah, I would just like to say, uh, and we can have this discussion another time. I think I think the Trey Young conversation in general focuses too much on what he um, is, sort of his deficiencies, and not on the fact that he's like a transcendent offensive player. Um, and the reason that that so much else is sort of put up with is because he's a transcendent offensive player, and he really is. Um, and so I just love watching Trey Young play basketball on a nightly basis, and uh, we'll continue to defend him on this podcast. <laughs> Uh, Gary, what do you no, mean? I'm all in on Trey. I'm all in on Trey. I think he's the future of this basketball team. He's the future of the city as far as 
Hawks basketball is concerned. And I think, I mean, like, like Max said, he's transcended on the offensive side of the basketball. And I think he's only going to get better. I mean, he's only going to get better because once he settles down, starts turning the ball over, uh, which are just young mistakes. I mean, he's still, what, 22 years old. I mean, yeah. the, guy is, the guy is transcendent already. And I still see so much of a ceiling for this guy. He can, he can get so much better. Um, and I'm excited to see it, like Max said. All right. Well, there you have it. We'll trade Trey Young for Bradley Beal today. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Will the Braves, transitioning to the Braves, will the Braves bring back Shane Green and Mark Melanson? What what do you think, Max? Um, Yeah, I don't know if I have a strong strong sort of opinion on this. I think the answer is probably yes on at least one of them. Um, And I think, you know, I was just digging through baseball reference today and they have sort of, projections for the 2021 season which i thought was interesting neither of their projections are all that inspiring um but i also as i articulated last week on the pod um my philosophy generally on bullpens is just to build uh with depth and versatility um young arms old arms um you know new guys guys who have been here i think bringing back both of them um wouldn't be a bad thing melanson's been around forever pitched for a million teams um, and, you know, has been pretty good, I would say. Um, and so I'd be happy if they both came back and you just build through depth and figure it out as the season goes along. Garrett, what do you think? Um, so I'm looking at this bullpen. I actually just pulled up the uh, who we have on the roster right now. I mean, I'm looking at it. You have high-leverage guys who are guys who could play in the high-leverage situation. Will Smith, Chris Martin, Tyler Magic, uh, A.J. Mentor. Those are guys who, can, who have experience doing that. And I think I'd feel comfortable with those guys coming in. Um, you have guys like Luke Jackson, who a lot of people are like, oh, my God, Luke Jackson. But he's, he's, a, fine, he's a fine relief pitcher. He's still on oh, the roster. Oh, let me stop you right there. No, he's not. Minute. I don't want him in my life anymore. Like, the Luke Jackson experience has been some of the worst relieving experience of, of my, I don't of my know. adult I just, life. I don't like him in high leverage. I don't no. like him in the high leverage. But pull, pull, I'm happy to put him in in the sixth, seventh inning. I'm, I'm okay with that. He's a fine setup pitcher. Mm-hmm. I think he gets a bad rap. I think he gets a bad rap. I think he's he's a he's a positive relief pitcher. He's not a dominant pitcher by any stretch of the imagination. But I think he's fine. And then you add guys like Josh Tomlin, Sean Newcomb, Grant Dayton. Uh, I, I think uh, what's the young guy's name? Yanoa. I mean, they have they have plenty of pitchers. Um, they're a couple injuries away from really having an issue. Um, and that's why I would like to see one of those guys re- get resigned. I doubt we get both um, because I don't think I think both these guys want longer term deals. And after the Marcelo Zuna deal that went through, I don't see the Braves ponying up any I also don't like that large anyway. amount of money. I think that's just bad strategy. Yeah, I don't like I, the idea of giving relievers so multi year deals. If they add if they add anything to the bullpen, it's gonna be some guy in like a one, maybe two year deal. Um just someone to add some some depth a little bit a little bit of depth to, to the bullpen. Where I really see a need is on the offensive side. So the lineup, I think the best guy coming off the bench right now. Um, is Johan Camargo, maybe an Ender and Ciarte. Are you comfortable with that? I'm certainly not. No. Because I think that was the most potent thing that the, the L.A. Dodgers had last year, is the fact that if a guy goes down, they have a guy who's just as good coming up off the bench. And part of that's because they just have this insane spending habit where they just throw money at problems. It's something that the Atlanta Braves are not, and they never will be. Um but the offensive side, the lineup needs depth. It needs depth, and I don't see that right now. Uh, and that, I think, should be the primary concern. 
more so than the bullpen because the bullpen, as it stands right now, it's not the best bullpen in baseball like we had last year. But I still see it as like potentially a top five, maybe a top or a top ten, maybe a top five bullpen in all of baseball. Yeah, um, and I'm fine with that, especially with the way they've built up the rotation. Um, but we need to address this lineup. We need depth. Um, like Hetcheverria last year, he's a guy you can just plug in, plug in at uh, in the middle of the field, and he's going to play good, bit, good, good defense. Uh, Ender Inciarte was like that, but he's and he's coming back. But those are really the only two guys that you have is, is Johan Camargo and Inciarte, and I'm not really comfortable with that. I don't know who your your pinch hitter is. Nick Markakis, obviously, Garrett. <laughs> Nick Markakis signed into a lifetime contract already. I mean, my God, he's going to get a statue outside of Truist, isn't he? Like he's going to have something. Oh yeah, no, we'll put him, we'll put him right next to Bobby Cox. Yeah, he's like the Frank Gore <laughs> of baseball. Like this dude's just going to keep existing and just be average to below average and just be on teams forever. Like Nick Markakis has the most Frank Gore like MLB career. Um. I, I love that comp. <laughs> that's why people come to this podcast, uh, guys, is for, for NFL to Major League Baseball comps. Um, yeah, exactly. I would be more okay with Shane Green than Melanson. Melanson's getting up there, and the velocity stuff still scares me, and I just, I'd just i be more comfortable just adding another guy like Shane Green. Um, and seeing what we have in Will Smith, that's going to be another big thing for this bullpen this year is what, uh, what that ultimately looks like. Um, are we sure, though, on another portion of the Braves part of this? Because Ozuna's back, so we know where he'll be. We know where Acuna will be. But Indian Ciarte has 8 million reasons to be back in Atlanta this year. But uh, Bowman today on MLB.com had a mailbag piece, and he said the Braves are going to give every chance for Christian Pache to be the everyday center fielder, and that's what they ultimately want. Um, Garrett, are you comfortable with giving giving Pache, if he earns it, like being comfortable going into the year with him being your everyday center fielder? Well, here, let me start Let me start with this. Two weeks ago, I did say that Marcelo Zuna was going to be in a Braves uniform. Uh, and mm-hmm. I was absolutely, You're right. There you go. Absolutely right. <laughs> let, me, let me just take a moment to take full credit for that. <laughs> but uh, moving on to Christian Pache, I mean, he's, he's a young player. I mean, he's, he's a guy who's going to come in and he's going to play great defense. That's what we know he's going to do. Um, on the offensive side, he's going to struggle. I mean, he's gonna, he showed some flashes against the Dodgers last year. He's he's a great player. I mean, he has all the talent in the world. I mean, people comped him to Andrew Jones, and I see the comparison. I think it's a great comparison. Um, but at the same time, rookie rookies have their struggles. Um, he needs to be that everyday guy. Um, or they, I mean, I, I trust him to be that, um, or at least just to, to show progress throughout the season. I think he's going to do great things. Um, and it, it's just as much a, a, a testament to what he's going to do this year, more or to, to what he's going to do in his career, more so than what he's going to do just this year. Um, so he just needs to be that guy. This is the year that he needs to take that step and, and become that everyday center fielder. But he's also got Indra Ciarte backing him up, who's a who's an elite defender who's going to come in and bat well. He's going to bat like two two oh five or something. So we, anything to get him off the plate. Um, so Christian Pache, he's, he's going to be the guy. I'm, I'm pretty excited for him. Max, what do you think? Yeah, I think there's, I think tempered excitement is probably the right way to put it. I think that that's also the right thing for the organization to say, to say um, we're going to give this guy every opportunity to win the job. I mean, he's he's uh, top 10 on Baseball America's top 100 prospects. Um, he's got all the talent in the world. I also think it's important to point out um, that and sort of temper those expectations by saying we can't have this conversation and say, um, hey, we really want him to be the center fielder. And then, you know, a few weeks in, if there are struggles, 
um, which I'm sure there will be at times, to then say, uh, got to pull the plug. Um, if you move, if you make the move with Pache in center field, he's got to sort of have some leash, I think, to figure it out. Um, and I have confidence he will. I mean, I think it's a, it's a lot easier of a conversation to have with Ozuna in the fold than without. Um, and so I, for that reason, I think I'm with Garrett. I think, I think it's the right move. I think it makes sense. I'm excited to see it. They also, they're also approaching this in a completely different way than they did earlier in, in, the, in this rebuild. Uh, or when it was still a rebuild, when they had Dancy Swanson, who was like, I, he was in no way, shape, or form ready to come in, up and play Major League Baseball. He was, and, every, and everyone like pegs him as the next Chipper Jones, and, and everyone's like, oh my God, this guy's incredible, and he comes up and hits 225. And then it's like, oh my God, this guy's a bust. What are we doing? Like, we need to get rid of him. And, and it's like, no, I mean, like, he's, he is who he is. He's going to be his own player. He's Jack Wilson. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, he's a good player. I mean, he's a solid player. He's a solid player. And I think Dancy Swanson's gotten better just about every single year. Um, and when he's finally healthy, he's he's going to play good baseball. And I mean, I, I think the Braves have gone a different route with with uh, Christian Pache. Um, I think they've let him develop at the at the minor league level, and I think he's he's going to come up and he's going to play good baseball. But there's also another guy that we're that I, I think we kind of omitted, who's not really talked about for whatever reasons. Drew Waters. Yeah. I mean, he's another guy who's going to be coming up at mm-hmm. some point. I see him making his debut probably June, maybe July. And he's going to be on this roster in September once once those rosters expand. And he's another guy who's going to come up and play good baseball. And <laughs> I'm really excited to see that guy, too. Um, I, I think Pache is a little bit further along, so I think that's why, really, we're talking about Pache over Waters. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there's a lot of depth in this outfield. Um, granted, it's very young and unproven. And once these guys get these reps, then this this outfield, the sky's the limit. I mean, we could have the best outfield trio in baseball for the next decade because these Ooh. three are very, very good. And I think Drew Waters is like what a top twenty overall prospect or something. Mm-hmm. That's that, that. And you pair that with Ronald Acuna and another top ten in Pache. Well, who's can I can I push back on one part of this? Incredible. Sure. The idea that the Braves will hit on Pache, Waters, Acuna, Albies, Freeman. And to, I guess, a lesser extent, uh, Dansby. Um, uh, well, also, let's just throw in Ian Anderson. Um, seems very low to me. Like, one of these, like, Austin Riley is just not even, like, think of how we looked at Austin Riley before he got called up and had a year and a half. Uh, he was batting in the middle of the lineup. We're like, this dude can be protection for Freddie Freeman. And then it's just like, oh, no, this dude just stinks. And his glove is a lot better third, but like he's not an everyday player, I don't think, on a really good team. I I would not. I mean, uh, I I'm gonna I, I can't agree with that. He's okay. 23 years old, man. You're ready. He's 23. R- wrote him off. He's 23. Scott Thread on this podcast. No, I I have not wrote I have not written him off at all. Uh, I've I've gone to bat for Austin Riley, no pun mm. intended, a few times. I like and that. I mean, this guy is he's very talented. I mean, he's I he, think he's he very talented. In Chipper too. Jones is his, yeah, and Chipper Jones came in and was his hitting coach last year. You saw an immediate improvement. Chipper Jones is going to be coming in, and he's going to be the, uh, I guess, part-time um, hitting coach. Uh, and I think that's going to do great things for Austin Riley and the rest of this, this lineup. But Would I mean, you at least not be tempted say, for Riley that, and Waters for Chris Bryant? Would you not be tempted by that? No, I don't Ooh. want Chris Bryant. I, I'm not Interesting. Chris Bryant. No, I'm really not. It would be the I best-looking infield in Major League Baseball. Chris Bryant and Dancy Swanson yeah, on the left side? Like, that, 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 would, that would tempt me. <laughs> 
I, I'm just not I'm not sold on on a guy like Chris Bryant. I mean, he's he's a guy in the last year of his con- he's he just got signed for a one year deal. Well, he yeah, I think part of it would just year. be like he. It's under the assumption that he is long term that you pay him long term too. Yeah, yeah, and I and I don't think the Braves are going to want to pony up and pay him. All Which that is money. silly. Uh, I just don't. It's Chris Bryant. I what are we doing? So. But it's I, the Atlanta Braves. He's a good player. He's a good player, but the Braves aren't going to pony up and pay him. And, and then you're looking at, at trading potentially two guys who are still have years to go in, on their before they hit arbitration, and these are two guys who could be so great, so very great. And a lot of could I understand. Be, yeah. I understand what could, trading for the shoulda, woulda, coulda. Yep. Or like what could be for what is, because uh, you already know what Austin, uh, not Austin, really, you, you already know who Chris Bryant is. Yes. I mean, he's a good player. He's a World Series MVP winning third baseman. Very good player. Also a very expensive player. And I don't know if I want to trade that potential for Chris Bryant. Now, if, if, if I would have a different tone if we're talking Arenado, Arenado before he got traded. Yeah. I would have ponied up and, tra- and, and paired these guys in for a guy like that. Um, but Austin Riley, I think, I think he still has some potential left in him. I think he can still be a very good player. Um, Drew Waters, I mean, he still has a lot to prove. And, and, and like you mentioned before, it's like you think, are we going to hit on all of, the, all of these guys? Well, no, probably not. I mean, like, there's a good chance that we don't hit on every single one. Yeah, like one of these three will not be a Brave well so three years from now. Like one of Drew Waters, Christian Pache, and Austin Riley will not be a Brave within three years. Yeah, and then you add in Max Fried yeah. and, and yeah. Soroka and, and all of these other guys who aren't under contract yet. Um, and yeah, and there are going to be some of these guys. Some of these guys might have to walk mm-hmm. because I think Soroka, Freed, uh, Austin Riley, uh, Freeman's got a contract coming up. Uh, we've got, and then Dansby Swanson's got a contract coming up. Travis Darno's got a contract coming up. Tra- but now, wasn't of course, part of was the reason, like, but wasn't part of what they were selling with the um, early extensions for Acuna and Albies was that like now we have the money because we saved on these two superstars to spend a, a lot of money on mm-hmm. the Ozunas of the world. Like that was the idea, right? That's definitely the idea yeah. because I think they're trying to maximize Freddie Freeman's uh, the, the remaining dominant years of Freddie Freeman. But Max, you go ahead. Yeah, I also think that that's a case, I guess, to A, find out what you have in guys like Christian Pache as early as possible mm-hmm. um, and what you, maybe you don't have. Um, but then sort of once you understand um, the value here and maybe they hit on all these guys, it's to sort of try to maximize that value as best you can. And I think in, in baseball and sometimes, especially with a team like the Braves, that should be World Series first mindset, um, maximizing that value means turning in some of the unknown for a known commodity. Um, and I'm not saying Chris Bryant's the perfect fit. He's probably not. But um, once you understand exactly what you have in Drew Waters and Christian Pache and all these guys, then you can sort of say, okay, how do we maximize all, all of these guys? Because knowing you're not going to pay all of them. But then the um, problem that you run into, Max, is now. Like, then their trade value plummets. If whoever they call up and the, who they bet on and they did not go after the, the who they are now, those guys, the Bryants, like once they get called up and they struggle, like the Kai Booms or whoever – then their trade value plummets. And then it's like, it's no longer a prospect. Yeah. It's your like the trade value for Austin gone. Riley before he got called up that year versus what he is now is not. It's like, it's like driving, it's like driving a car off a lot. Yes. Right? Uh, you know, the, the value drops immediately once they're in the majors. Um, Kyle and Wright's I, and another good that, example. Also, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's also like, maybe you understand what you have in Christian Pache and you really like that. And you're willing to roll the dice that Drew Waters is not. Um, or or that he is, and and that the, who you're getting on the receiving end, um, it's just that much worth it. Because if your outfield's full, then then your outfield's full. Um, 
Uh, it's a good problem to have all around. I mean, it's a really good problem for the Braves to have. And I kind of, I have faith that they will figure out sort of the best balance of that. Yeah, I think so. I, I think we're still moving in the right direction. I, I know Garrett had like a brain aneurysm seeing that the, the Braves were uh, posited as a number four team in the NL East this year, um, which is just <laughs> insane. Out, yeah, like it's just anyone who has the, the stones to put both the Nationals and the Phillies ahead of the Braves is um, out of their mind. Like I, I, you could sell me on the Mets. That's about it. But um, yeah, we uh, we shall see. Um, anything else, guys, uh, outside of J.J. Watt and a Photoshop Falcons uniform that you would like to add before we wrap up here? <laughs> I'm good. Ready he's not going to be a Falcon. Atlanta. He, he's Watt, not no, going to be a Falcon. Be like J.J. Watt's not no. going to be a Falcon. No. He's going to Pittsburgh, man. That's my. That is my. I put money on that. He's going to go play with both of his brothers. I mean, come on. I I, I had two brothers. I would never in a million years pass up the opportunity to go play with both of my brothers, especially if one of my brothers is a defensive player of the year candidate uh, two years in a row. I mean, that's only going to elevate my game, and it's going to get him, yeah. make him better. I, I, I'm just excited. I, I my bet my money is on Pittsburgh. Interesting, Max. Where do you think he goes? I like Pittsburgh. I, I, Green Bay is worth a shout. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back to Wisconsin. Um, they could, you know, I don't know. I think that would be a nice fit. But I, but I think it's hard not to see the fit with Pittsburgh. Everyone made the conclusion or the uh, the connection with um, Bill Belichick in New England. I don't think that makes any sense. Um, actually, I don't know. Uh, I think they have money. Fun. I actually was going to say have, the Pats. They do have money. The Pats actually make a lot really? of sense for JJ Watt going i i would li- like they have money and the pats i think when you listen to what people around the league were saying about the pats and how belichick treated this season that it was just a a, a a year he did not give a shit about that part of me thinks that because they reset the cap and because it was all about resetting the cap that jj watts the exact type of richard seymour type that he does at this stage and brings in on this defensive line and uh, I think the Pats are going to be very, very aggressive. And an early way to be very, very aggressive is to sign J.J. Watt to play football for your for your football team for six games before his season's over. So you want to get those six games could in. They, could they maybe have not given a shit a little bit better and <laughs> put themselves in a better better position to get a quarterback? Because <laughs> I don't know who's going to play quarterback for that team. Jacob Eason, I think. Um, they're going to trade for Jacob oh, Eason. Jake Fromm? Who can oh, they get man. in there from the um, <laughs> I don't know. I actually have no idea who's going to be under center for the New England Patriots this year. Um, uh, there are plenty of quarterbacks. Max Jones. available. Mac Jones. Mac Jones That'd be would interesting. be a very New England one. Um, and also, his stats are very identical to two as at Alabama. Just, uh, just saying. Um, for that guy down there in Atlanta, Georgia. For that other guy down there in Atlanta, Georgia, Garrett and Max, thank you as always for the time. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. We'll be back next Friday, hopefully with J.J. Watt in a Falcons uniform. Who could ever foresee anything else? Guys, thank you so much for the time. Um, Miss Jackson is not the greatest uh, outcast song. See you later. (laughs) Bye, guys. Cheers. All right, we're back on a Friday afternoon edition of Volcanic Takes, a very good Tennessee podcast on the ct podcast it's friday so that's what we do uh first timer though david Sheely is here david good afternoon sir how are you i'm good how you doing i'm good um so i've learned that you are an alumnus from georgia state 
university. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That is correct. Okay, so I am an alumnus undergrad for the University of North Georgia. So I'm actually a Georgia native as well. Are you are you from Georgia? I am from Georgia. Yeah, I uh, I lived there as a kid. I mean, I, I moved a lot of places, but the the two places I spent a lot of time was Georgia and Indiana. So. Hmm. It's been about the same amount of time there coming up. Um, and I went, of course, I went to college in downtown Atlanta um, at Georgia State. So um, those are kind of like my two homes, but Georgia is like my, my first home. Interesting. So the Adderhold building, you're you're all about it. Uh, not the walk there, because I mean, it's <laughs> honestly like going, going to Adderhold is like trying to deliver the Krusty Krab pizza because it's like it's super windy. It's super windy, uh-huh. and if it's cold outside, then it's it's like negative ten degrees trying to go over there because the wind chill. So like, I no, I did not like going to Adderhold. Interesting. I went there for one year, my sophomore year of school. So okay, yeah, I did not. I was not a not a big fan. Not I lived at obviously downtown for five years after I graduated, but uh, George State, right. I don't know. It, it just wasn't the right feel for me. Um, also here in my. Mm-hmm. All, my locality. I think we're all local now. We're all Knoxville people at this point. Um, Ryan Shumpert of the University of Tennessee Daily Beacon. Ryan, good afternoon, sir. How are you? Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. Doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here, man. Sorry, we didn't know going in that you would be the, the lone Tennessee native on this podcast. You've gotten used to I, Trey. I know. And, I, yeah. I didn't... <laughs> Yeah, I didn't expect to be outnumbered, but uh, pretty quickly, two to one from from the Atlanta over over Nashville. That's how it should be, Proud. in all honesty. Um, Atlanta, noted better city, southern city than uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Everyone knows it. We all believe it. It uh, is actually how it works. Um, this week in Knoxville, guys, Ryan, what uh, what have you seen this week uh, around town? Anything interesting? Um. Nothing overly interesting. It feels like we're sitting here trying to tackle a lot of the same questions we were trying to tackle last week and what Josh Heupel's staff is going to look like. Um, I think the Tennessee basketball team found a little bit of an identity since the last time we talked, so that's that's been a little more exciting for, for people around here. But overall, still a lot of question marks about Heupel's staff, what that's going to look like, and kind of a wait-and-see game right now. Absolutely. And we'll get into that in just a second. Uh, David. What uh? What about you? Have you been around and seeing what uh, what's up with Knoxville in the last week? Well, I think uh, we're getting kind of close to that high school basketball tournament time. Um, some of the uh, Division two schools are already um, starting up when it comes to uh, the high school basketball playoffs, and that's always exciting. Um, you know, kind of what Ryan was saying. We, yeah, we still don't know what the Coach Heupel's staff is going to look like when it comes to the. University of Tennessee, um, you know, nothing official yet. Definitely a lot of, you know, stuff that's been reported, but nothing official yet. Um, and I guess it is believed that he will announce the entire staff at one point. So, like, all the names will just drop at one point and we'll just have a list of, of coaches. So that'll be pretty interesting there. And then, you know, basketball team is doing pretty well, mm-hmm. uh, both the men's and women's teams. Uh, I think the uh, finding some consistency has been kind of the theme. For, for both teams this year. 
Um, but today is also the start of spring sports, or I guess to say the diamond sports, because the softball team has a doubleheader today, um, starting their 2021 season, and we're a week away from Tennessee baseball. I'm excited for Tennessee baseball. Uh, I, I'm going to go as, to as many games as possible. As someone who grew up on college baseball, especially downtown, going to Georgia Tech games when my grandfather went to Tech, um, I, I still think that's like the best college baseball venue, but um, just the skyline of Atlanta. I don't know. David, have you been to one in uh, Georgia Tech bas- uh, baseball game? I have not been to a Georgia Tech baseball game. I've been to games that Georgia Tech played in on other campuses, mm. um, but I have not been to their. I have not been to their baseball stadium, um, but I've seen plenty of college baseball because I've, I covered all the sports teams at Georgia State, so that included baseball, that included softball, um, and of course now here I've been to a bunch of Tennessee baseball and softball games, but Georgia Tech baseball was the one team that I did not get to see play at home. Interesting, interesting. We should also mention David works for WBIR Sports, um, so they, he does great work there. So check out WBIR if you're not already in the great state of Tennessee. Um, guys, we got to talk about the latest in the defensive coordinator search. Um, just reading the room and my uncles and all my Tennessee family and friends losing their minds about this. All of them, what I've noticed is there is a direct correlation between boomers who want Kevin Steele and everybody else who's like, ah, it's fine. We don't have to keep Kevin Steele on. It's more complicated than that. And I don't know if this is something that y'all have noticed, the difference between, well, he's getting paid to do a job. Let's just do it for a year and everything else. And like, let's just run it with him. I don't understand why we wouldn't just make him do it. Um, Ryan, what, uh, what do you make of, of that, uh, assumption? Well, you know, it's definitely a popular one out there. And I think there's, there's some reasons schematically that it's, it's not a great fit with Heifel, but I think those people who, who are screaming it at the top of their lungs, the, the hire them, I think they, they feel more empowered and more right as Tennessee is as long as this search keeps on going on peers at Tennessee got turned down by Al Washington. I, don't think any of that's officially official, but a lot of still uncertainty or really can't get anyone to take the job. And when you have a, a veteran defense coordinator in house already getting paid that you're going to have to pay a buyout to if, if you don't keep them on staff, which doesn't seem likely people are uh, kind of understandably frustrated, but like you said, I don't think it's as simple as that. And it's an important hire and someone that Heifel has to get that fits what he wants to do and where he wants to, to take this program. David, what do you think? Yeah, there's 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 layers to this. There's got to be. Um, if it was as simple as, hey, this guy's been hired, whoever the head coach is, um, this guy's going to be on the defensive staff. Well, you know, I, I feel like that that would have been a bad deal for the head coach to come in and say, hey, we already got your defensive guy yep. um, lined up for you. Don't even worry about it, and he doesn't get to say so. Well, he's running the program. You know, I think it's it's not a very wise idea to tell the guy hey, this is your program except for this one part. So I think there are layers to that. Um, now, you know, every, everything, like the details and all that, I'm not going to pretend that I know all those. I don't. But um, it, it's still not official yet who anybody is anywhere on the staff. You know, I, I check the website all the time to see if anybody's been officially announced. Josh Heupel is listed as the only coach. That's it. He, he's the only coach listed there. And it doesn't look like that's changing for at least another week or so. So I, I just, you know, I'm I'm kind of wondering when that's going to happen. Um, I do know that Tennessee does plan to have an orange and white game. 
And so, but in order to start really working on the details of that, they need a coaching staff. So they, they only have so much time at this point. When do you think the orange and white game is going to happen? Um, I, they usually happen in like April. So I, yeah. I would say, I would say April. Um, okay. as, well, you know, that they the, definitely the thing, wanted to announce the DC Wednesday. Like that was definitely the plan is they wanted to do the whole staff by the, by the middle of this week. And that clearly did not happen. Um, and I don't think that's an embarrassing thing, but it did seem like that was where they were, they were trending. Right. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, I, the only reason I was so curious about the orange and white game is because by now we usually have an announcement of when it's going to happen. Like by now we, we, we should know. Um, so, you know, this, we were, it, it was so quick to get a head coach, but the, the time period of like waiting to see if Pruitt was going to get fired was so long. And I feel like we're just in another phase of that again, where it's like, well, we know at some point something's going to happen. Either there's going to be an announcement that he stays or he gets fired, but we know something's going to happen eventually. Same thing here. We know there's going to have to be a coaching staff, but, you know, we don't know when that's going to come. We don't know, you know, but eventually it'll happen. I'm just just being as patient as I can because it's just about, you know, win. Yeah, for sure. Um, Ryan, do you have a leader? Yeah, jump jump in here one thing i was going to add onto what david was saying on, on the spring game something i'd watch for there is i wonder if schools think they may open up recruiting in the spring whether that be in april or may as things start to get better i think there's been some thought that that may happen so i think there may be a little bit of now obviously tennessee doesn't have a coaching staff so they probably wouldn't have their spring date set in, anyway but i think you may see some hesitation as teams kind of wait and maybe push back spring games in the may if that's when things get opened in recruiting just so they can bring people on campus, show them some sort of a game atmosphere after not getting able to do that at all last fall. Interesting. Yep. And who's to say there's not some FCS coaches that Hypo may want. And the FCS teams are about to play seasons, you know. Um, there's about to be a whole spring football season, I think, starting this weekend or next weekend. Yeah, there's weekend. a game this weekend. I think so, it's like McNeese State, or if I'm not mistaken, is playing this Yeah, there's, there's like a bunch of FCS football that's about to happen. So may, there may be some guys there that Coach Heifel's looking at that are kind of occupied right now. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, who do you – like if Al Washington, we can cross him off, and um, I, I <laughs> Heifel and Danny White – deserve some sort of gigantic breadbasket from Washington for the amount of money they have made him in the last two weeks. So I'm um, interested to see how Al Washington returns the favor, at least a good fruit basket, something for the gigantic Bay Rays that he's pushed uh, Ohio State into. Um, you love to see it, folks. Um, but Casey Rogers seems like uh, someone that they're talking to and interesting. And, you know, he played at Tennessee and also – he coaches the defensive line uh, at Tampa Bay, who just won the Super Bowl, and Tampa Bay won the Super Bowl in large part because right. of what Shaq Barrett and Jason Pierre-Paul and Vita Bea did on the defensive line against Patrick Mahomes and those bad offensive linemen. Um, what do you make of that? And then also the Rodney Gardner addition and what that might mean on the defensive line because those two don't seem to be connected, but uh, it is interesting that the rumored D.C. target – um, it's a defensive line guy, and they just hired a defensive line coach. David, what do you think? Well, yeah, so speaking on, on Rodney Garner, because that's what I know the most about, just just from, you know, reports and talking to some people, 
I mean, the guy, he he knows what a winning team looks like because he's been on, he's been in the locker room of winning teams. He's been in the locker room of a winning Tennessee team. Um, and, and he's also a really good recruiter. And I, and that's really what Tennessee needs. They need they need coaches who can recruit the right way, um, just based off of everything that's happened. And they they they've got to be able to have some some integrity in there, um, like Coach Heupel wanted, and like Danny White wants. Um, you got to have some you got to have some integrity there. And and I definitely think Coach Gardner brings that. Um, he's well respected in the SEC. He's familiar with the SEC. And that's something that people have kind of, you know, knocked high before. It's like, hey, you've been in the SEC, but you haven't been in, you haven't been a head coach in the SEC, and now now you're going to be consistently playing Georgia, Florida, Alabama, and it, it's going to be tough. Well, Heupel knows the line of scrimmage is super important, so you get a guy like Garner who knows the line of scrimmage um, very very well in the SEC and knows how to get his guys ready. Um, and has and has recruited the players that have succeeded here in this conference and in and in Tennessee. I think this is probably one of the uh, one of the sleeper hires that that's been reported so far. Um, and and that's that's the one to really look for. That defensive line for Tennessee is, is it's going to be really important because they're going to be they're going to be playing some really beefy offensive lines. I mean that's that's just that's just how the SEC goes. You got to beef up that offensive line and. This hire, this hire should should really help them out. Ryan, what do you think? Yeah, and Gardner, there's, there's two things that stand out. One, just what David was talking about, the SEC ties. The people who have been reported on the staff right now, not a ton of SEC ties, not a ton of SEC experience. There's no one with more experience recruiting the SEC than Rodney Gardner, and there's no one with more experience recruiting the state of Georgia than Rodney Gardner, which is going to be incredibly important for Josh Heupel. And then Number two, I think he's he's a really good on-the-field coach. And you look at Tennessee's defensive line, they took a big step back from two seasons ago under Tracy Rocker to last season with four games under Jimmy Brumball and then Jeremy Pruitt coming in. If Tennessee's going to make a jump and surprise some people next year, defensive line's kind of the position on the defense, at least, that I think has some talent and really underachieved last year. So it's, it's going to be important right away for him to get in there and see if he can, can get some instant results and then – on Casey Rogers, I, I wouldn't think it's a huge deal that they hired a defensive line coach, especially when it was someone with the pedigree that Rodney Gardner has. But Casey Rodner, or excuse me, Casey Rogers, it's interesting because he's got a lot of great NFL experience. Does he want to come back to college? Hasn't coached in college since 2002 when he was at Arkansas. Obviously, Tennessee is his alma mater. And then the one kind of question mark there, only one stint as a defensive coordinator, and that was under Todd Bowles. So, you know, Todd Bowles had his fingerprints all over that defense so he doesn't have a ton of experience running his own defense that would be the one kind of question mark on him but a ton of ton of coaching experience and and where Tennessee is at in in this coaching search I think they could definitely do a lot worse than him yeah um where do you think this ultimately goes David who do you think is ultimately the defensive coordinator uh this fall in Knoxville yeah that that that's a tough question um I I'm not sure uh, and, and you know, I, it's it's hard for me to really to really guess. I mean, I I didn't I didn't expect Josh Heupel to be the head coach. Mm. So who were you expecting? You know, that, Tony Elliott. Oh, interesting. I, I really thought okay. they. I, I thought I thought they were going to be able to swing uh, Tony Elliott, and and um, and that's just because like Dan, Danny White knows how to find different coaches that you know can just that, that they win. 
Like they just have this, these characteristics and they win. Um, so I was, I was like 75% sure that Tony Elliott was going to be the guy. Um, and that's because I didn't think Heupel was going to leave UCF. I didn't think that was like, I was like, that's probably not going to happen. Um, but you know, do you think the reason I'm not, I'm Elliott not, didn't happen is just because of the the uncertainty uh, surrounding the investigations and what the penalties will actually be? Do you think if it was a clean slate, he's the guy? I I'm sure that was the situation with a lot of coaches. Yeah, I mean I'm I, I you know I've I've heard that they spoke to a lot of coaches in a lot of places. It was truly a nationwide search. Um, it was really a nationwide search, and they just. I mean, we don't know what the NCAA is going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, we have no idea what the punishment for Tennessee is going to be. You know, postseason ban, you know, losing losing scholarships, you know, all kind of stuff. But right now, um, you know, I, I feel like to answer that question, I feel like that was the reason Tony Elliott didn't want to come, just like all, all the other coaches. Had it been a clean slate, had it been a clean slate, um, I think – Pruitt would have probably got one more year um, just because it was like, hey, guys, it was a pandemic year. We didn't get spring. We didn't do this. You know, Harrison Bailey ended up coming on at the end of the season. We got a chance here with him. You know, give him a full off season, and if we still aren't producing, okay, then I can go. And I feel like he would have been able to swing that. If it was a totally clean slate and nobody was in trouble. I don't think Tennessee would have had a coaching search. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, Ryan, what do you, what do you think of all that? I think there's there's a lot of truth in that, and I'm, I think it's the question that, that no one really knows, but the o- overlying question was, did Tennessee make this really go into this recruiting violations and really dig into the investigation and pay the top-notch lawyers because they were concerned about illegal recruiting, or were they doing that because they didn't want to pay, pay Jeremy Pruitt his buyout? And that's a question, obviously, Tennessee would, would never say that the latter is the case, and obviously that's what Jeremy Pruitt and his lawyer has said, and mm-hmm. I don't think anyone knows what the answer to that question is. But So you just don't know, but I, I would say that if, if that was the case, if that was the thought process, let's not pay, let's save, let's do an investigation and not have to pay Pruitt his buyout, I think that has proven over the coaching search and how long they've delayed things and how the coaching search has gone for the defense coordinator. I think that's proven to be a very poor decision um, made the job in the defense coordinator job right now, a lot less desirable with the cloud of the NCAA hanging over things. I will tell you um, talking to uh, my former coach about, cause you and I, uh, Ryan have talked about Cody Brown and what's going on there. Um, I, I think this is a sentiment among a lot of guys who've signed their intent or in the portal is that like some of them might come back if the this is cleared up they just know what the sanctions are and part of it is just like why would we go here when the sanctions are limited or just um not available like why would we keep our letter of intent because this is not what we signed up for it's not necessarily an indictment on the coaching staff um and i think they would be able to keep a lot of these guys like the cody browns if they were able to just get it out in the open of what it is because like Chandler's gone, Gray's gone. Like there's an easy opportunity for Cody Brown to get a bunch of snaps at running back right away. It's just more of like, are we going into a situation where I can't play in a bowl game for three years? Like that is something they have to wonder. And it's like, if we, why would we still want to go here? Um, why would Henry Toa Toa come back if they don't even know what the DC situation looks like? Like there's just, 
uh, so much uncertainty that I do think needs to be wrapped up sooner rather than later because I think it permeates the recruiting, through the guys in the portal, through the rest of the coaching staff, the university itself. Like The sooner we can wrap this up, the better. Um, the offensive side of the ball, though, does seem to be wrapped up. Uh, Jeremy Mack. Jeremy Mack is added to the um, offensive room. What do you make of that higher away from, from Rice, uh, David? You know, I, I think, again, it, it's another one of those, you know, uh, pre- pretty good hires. Um, and he's a former head coach. I think that's also pretty important, um, being a head coach and then being an associate head coach at Rice, uh, somebody who knows offenses, right? You, you gotta, if you're going to be on this, this staff, this offensive staff, you, you've got to really know offense because this is a fast-paced offense. It's an offense that likes, to, that, that likes to spread defenses around, that likes to look at matchups and figure out how to exploit those, and then just really frustrate defenses with similar looks but different plays. So uh, it's I feel like that's another pretty decent hire. It's just, man, that, you, you look at that offense, and it's just been decimated. Um, you were kind of looking yeah. to it earlier. That offensive line, not just from the transfer portal, but just guys who aren't returning. You know, Trey Smith, um, you know, he, he's going to the NFL draft. And then you have uh, Brandon Kennedy. He's, he's out. You know, he, he's done. He's, 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 he's played in college for a long time. So mm-hmm. he felt like, hey, it's, it's, time, it's time to move on. Um, so Wanya Morris he, he, in Oklahoma. I actually take a look. Wanya Morris is in Oklahoma. Jameer Johnson is gone. Um like it, it's a lot. It's a lot of offensive talent there. That that's that's out of here. That's a lot. And you take a look at that starting offensive line from the game against South Carolina. They're pretty much all gone. Um, and 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 actually, if you think about it, Wanya Morris did not start that game. He saw action, but he did not even start that game. And still, most of that starting offensive line is gone. Um, so they they're, they're going to have to do some work there. And you know, it's you can be a good running back. But a, a good running back with a bad offensive line is just an average running back. So um, that's that's where they really need the help at. You know, who's going to be the offensive lineman coach? Who's going to try to you know come? Who, who can recruit offensive linemen to kind of come fix what happened there? Um, because I'm 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 a, I'm a guy who likes watching good running backs, but I also I understand that good running backs can only do so much if their offensive line is is not good, especially in the SEC. Ryan, what do you think? Yeah, my kind of looking at it, it was kind of on a lesser degree, but some of the same things with Gardner is that you got a lot of Southern ties. Now he hasn't recruited at a lot of big schools, but he's coached in Memphis, Central Arkansas, Arkansas Pine Bluff, South Alabama. So he's he's been in the high schools in the South. He knows coaches. He has a relationship with coaches. So I think that plays well for, like I said, a coaching staff that doesn't have a, a ton of Southern ties. And the fact he's from Memphis, coached in Memphis, I would think we've heard Josh Heupel make a big statement about what they're going to do in the state of Tennessee and how important that is. And I imagine Memphis is very important to that. And I'd imagine Jerry Mack will have a very prominent role in recruiting Memphis. Interesting. Well, speaking of Memphis, Joe Doyle transferring to Memphis. Are, should we be in panic mode about the departure of Doyle to, uh, to Memphis? <laughs> there have been so many people depart this offseason. I, I, I wouldn't be throwing the panic button or slamming the panic button at, at Joe Doyle leaving, but no. certainly a, a little bit of a loss, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, basketball. Let, uh, let's talk about Tennessee basketball. That is on the upswing. It's been a great week for Keon Johnson and Jaden Springer. 
obviously their second half in the Kentucky game was incredible and uh, just them taking that next step that was sorely needed on uh, on this Tennessee roster to get them back on track, especially offensively. Um, David, what do you make of Keon and Springer breaking through against not only Kentucky, but also Georgia, highlighted by that poster from Keon Johnson? I'm, I'm, look, man, I'm still trying to get over that, uh, that dunk, man. I, I, that was, that was insane. Um, you know, top play on Sports Center. Just, I mean, the reactions on social media, and and I wish it was a, I wish it was a packed arena when that happened. I really do. Um, and, and it's unfortunate, man, that that there weren't a, a, you know, a bunch of people just just packing that arena to really react to that because I feel like. That probably would have been one of the loudest I've ever heard Thompson bowling. Mind you, I've only been here for uh, two and a half basketball seasons, or really, I guess it was two basketball seasons because I came into in the second half of that year when they were, you know, they had Grant Williams and Schofield and Jordan Bone, um, and now this this season here. So, um, yeah, I mean that that dunk was insane. What what I what, what we're seeing here is that two freshmen who are really really good. Okay came in top some of the top recruits in the entire country and now they're comfortable in the system they're comfortable they have an understanding and they're starting to the game is starting to slow down for them and you can tell it's starting to slow down for them so the offense should now work through them i understand they want to work inside out and they want to do everything but honestly you look at it the offense should be let keon and springer attack and make the defense answer to that. And if they can't, okay, then you can adjust and do whatever you need to do. But right now, you need to put the ball in the hands of your playmakers, and that's Johnson and Springer. And that is the formula that's been working uh, in the past couple of games. You let them make their plays. You let them play their game. Now that they're comfortable, earlier in the season, you know, they weren't they're, – they're still, you know, trying to figure things out. That's why when Tennessee was in some tight games um, early – they weren't getting those minutes and it's because they had like Barnes wasn't sure if they could be in that situation just yet. But now, yeah, I mean, they, they, they need to be, you know, game on the line. You need to play. You need to work those two into that, that game winning play. That That's how it needs to go for, for the rest of the season through the NCAA tournament. Those two are the focal point of your offense. Absolutely. I agree. Um, Ryan, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I agree 100%. And the thing I think you've seen the last two games to kind of go along with it, I think it's an interesting look is obviously against Kentucky, Fulkerson got into a lot of foul trouble and played 10 minutes. Pons didn't play Wednesday night against Georgia. Tennessee ran a lot of four-guard lineups, and mm-hmm. it made the offense look significantly, significantly better. And especially the way that Keon Johnson and Jaden Springer want to play, they want to get downhill, they want to drive to the basket. Being able to space the, the floor like that, I think, makes that a lot, lot easier for them, and it makes it a lot easier to run in transition. Now, the question is, it's, at some point, Tennessee's not a very good rebounding team to begin with. Now, mm-hmm. if you're playing four guards, that's going to get worse. When do they run into teams that can make them pay for running that four-guard lineup and force them to kind of go back and play big? When they do that, like David said, I would still expect them to play through Johnson and Springer, but I think that, that limits a little bit of the ceiling, at least offensively, for this team. Yeah, I just... Fulkerson is like the odd man out here, but like you need his offensive rebounding so much, and his rebounding is the one thing keeping him there. And I, I don't know, man. Like I, I think you, like you said, you have to be versatile. You have to be able to uh, match up depending. On, like 
there's part of it where they're going to run into teams that are more talented, like the Baylors, the Gonzagas, whoever, the Michigans, where they are going to impose their will on Tennessee, and Tennessee has to respond. Um, Tennessee will be able to survive in the SEC tournament, playing four-guard lineups for the most part. Um, I think they unlock something that should be fine, but I... I don't know. I just I go back and forth on this because this is modern basketball and this is like how they probably should have been playing all along. But I I don't know. Like I don't. I, I a part of me is like I'd rather them just li- live and die by the four guard lineup and close and don't bend and be like, hey, we got to play big because Team X is a bigger team. Like no, trust your young guys and your guards to be able to overpower them and run their bigs off the floor. Like that's that's more of what I would do. Um, I just I don't know if Rick Barnes is comfortable leading a small lineup to be like, hey, see if you can stop us. We know we're going to kill in the glass, but we're also going to outscore you and outshoot you. So we'll, we'll let the chips fall where they may. David, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think we, we look at this uh, this team, and, and about a, a month ago, um, really earlier, um, a little bit earlier into this month, um, we saw some inconsistencies, you know, and, and we, we, we know this team can win. We know this team can win a game. That that Kentucky game is an example of that. Um, but look, they've they've got a formula. They've unlocked this new level. Um, now I, I tell you what, some of some of the uh, issues that Tennessee has had is is when teams can just knock down shots. Um, like we look at the uh, like I look at that that Ole Miss game. Um, I look at that Florida game. What are you going to do when a team's when a team's knocking them down? You know, you you can't control that. Um, so that's that's something to look for. But other than that, this this team is. I said earlier in the season, I said this team has Sweet Sixteen Elite Eight potential, um, but they've got to stay out of foul trouble. They've got to be smart with their minutes, um, and and they've just they've got to be disciplined. There's some games where the discipline is just gone. Um, and that, and it, 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 it's a head scratcher. It's a really a head scratcher when that happens, I, you know, but this, this team, I really think that they can, they can make, they can make some noise now. Um, they can really make some noise that went over Kansas was kind of a statement. Uh, and, but they've, they've got to, they've got to come with that same energy. Absolutely. Ryan, any final thoughts on Tennessee's, uh, last two games and where they're going, going forward? Yeah, I think what David was saying is something that's going to be really interesting to watch down the stretch. The teams that can spread it out, attack, and shoot the three, those are the teams that kill Tennessee. Alabama did it. Arkansas did it. Obviously, Arkansas didn't win that game, but they scored a lot of points on Tennessee. With the sport guard lineup, Tennessee can do a lot more of the switching and the stuff that Rick Barnes wants to do. And a lot of those games, and I think the Auburn game is going to be a perfect test to watch. So we've seen it the past few years. Auburn has gotten switches, and they've attacked with their guards against Tennessee's bigs, and they've really tried to attack glass. Can Tennessee, with this four-guard lineup, kind of stop some of that stuff that Auburn wants to do, Alabama wants to do, those kind of high-octane offenses? Because that's really what they've struggled with under Barnes and the style of defense they play. But I feel like now, with you know, potentially going small, they have, have the weapons to stop it a little bit more. Absolutely. And quickly, guys, the SEC, like we talked about, the Vols baseball team will be back soon. Preseason predictions seem to heavily favor the Vols and the SEC. Um, Ryan, why should we be excited about uh, Tennessee baseball being back? Well, it's uh, their highest preseason predictions that are in the SEC's highest predictions since 2005 when they hosted a regional, made it to the College World Series, and 
I think that's kind of the goal for this team. See if they can – not the College World Series. That was probably a little misleading. See if they can host a regional. They got back to the NCAA tournament two years ago. They would have been in the NCAA tournament last season. They hadn't gotten canceled. And a lot of – you know, they lost three really important players. But besides that, everyone back on a team that was was really good last year, led the, led the nation in runs, was second in home runs. So it should be exciting to watch. They have some question marks that weekend rotation that they have to figure out. But – they have an offense that should be able to, to carry the load, especially in the, the pre-conference slate. David, what do you think? Yeah, they, they've got some of the bats. Like, they, they've got the bats. I'm not, I'm not necessarily worried about that, but like Ryan was saying, it's, it's that pitching. Um, you know, what, what, what's the bullpen situation like? What's the rotation going to be like? You know, they, they, lost some, they lost some really, really good players um, in, in, that, um, in that rotation over the past couple of years, and they, they've also lost – some really good players that was that were in the outfield, um, and and there are some teams in the SEC that can really hit the ball, um, and 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 I, I look at the SEC and I, once again I say this conference play is going to be huge for what Tennessee's success will be in the season. You know, um, looking at some of the rankings, Tennessee, yeah, are they a top twenty-five team, yeah, they are, but the conference teams ahead of them, like South Carolina's ahead of them. Um, I know Arkansas is ahead of them, uh, LSU, Mississippi State, Vandy. I think Florida is, is ranked number one. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of powerhouse teams here um, in the SEC, and that's like if if Tennessee was like in any other conference, like if they were like in the Big Ten or something, it was like this this is their conference to lose. But being in the SEC, it's more like even though you're ranked, they still have to prove themselves. Um, so that's that's the one thing that I'm going to be looking at. Like, how, how do they go through SEC play? Because that, that is a, that's a gauntlet. That is a gauntlet. For sure. For and one sure. thing I'll, I'll add on there, no, no pitchers that have made any, any career SEC starts. So they have, they have some bodies there. They have some solid guys. But who can, who can step up and be a, a top-end weekend starter is, is very much a question going into the season. Yep. Yep. All right. David, how can we uh, check you out uh, here in Knoxville? Sure. Um, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, that is Deacon underscore Sheely. Um, Sheely is S-C-H-I-E-L-E. Um, and you can also catch me on YouTube. Uh, I got a gaming channel that is Five Wars Deke. So five, just spell out the number or spell it. Yeah, I guess spell out the number um, five and then Wars and then D-E-A-C. Five Wars Deke. That's on YouTube. I do some uh, some breakdowns via video games. Also just kind of some like franchise modes and whatnot. But um, that's if you want to keep up with what I'm doing, that's the best way to do it. All right. Ryan, what about you? Yeah, you can find me at, on Twitter at, at rshump, double zero, R-S-C-H-U-M-P, double zero. All right. Go do that. Guys, thank you so much for the time. I greatly appreciate it. Stay safe out there, and uh, maybe we'll see each other around uh, these Knoxville streets. Sounds good, man. Yeah, I'm sure. Appreciate, appreciate you having me. All right. We're good. David, that was great. Great work, man. All right. Yeah, no problem, man. No All problem. right. Well, Ryan, David, I appreciate the time. As always, got to jump on the next one, but uh, I'll have this up uh, in a little bit, and I'll link you on all that good stuff. Yeah, for sure. Appreciate it. Good time, guys. Thanks, guys. All right. Take care, man. What about that Kentucky running game in 2020? Chase Thomas mentioned it to me this week. Y'all know Chase Thomas. Chase Thomas podcast. Link, description, 
sub, listen. And when he brought it up, I was like, yeah, I need to go back and learn a little bit about how things went this past season in Lexington, because honestly, I wasn't able to see many of their games. Let's take a look, see what we can find. Wyatt's got the ball. Wyatt back to throw. Wyatt looks. Wyatt toward the end zone. Pass. Oh, of course, touchdown by Matthew Butler. Matthew Butler. What's up, y'all? I'm Matt Wyatt, former player, now broadcaster, helping you get more enjoyment watching football. Welcome back to the channel. Kentucky's offense was obviously built around their run game this year in 2020. On third and one, it's Rodriguez to the end zone. Touchdown. Rodriguez, the running back, was the leading rusher, but not the only contributor. And Terry Wilson, the quarterback, was top three, which uh, speaks to the scheme that they use, which was primarily a zone running offense where the quarterback has a lot of reads and can keep the ball some, hold the backside honest, all that. Rodriguez, he can take this down, Dorado. The numbers compared to 2018, a year when they had Benny Snell and a healthy Terry Wilson at quarterback. They averaged 199 yards a game that year and just under five yards per carry. Here in 2020, Terry Wilson healthy again, and they averaged 196 rushing yards a game and five yards per carry, just like 2018. Now, I skipped over 2019 because the injuries at quarterback forced them to be almost exclusively a running offense with Lynn Bowden, a converted receiver playing quarterback. So those numbers are skewed. 2018 and 2020 were, I thought, better comparisons. Not look good for the guy that's just been there. Their catalyst on offense. Big hole here. Speaking of catalyst, Chris Rodriguez in the open field. Can he get to the end zone? Yes, he will. Touchdown, Kentucky. This season, the numbers pretty much tell the story for the uh, Kentucky offense. Only three games, opponents held them under 100 yards rushing. Those were Mississippi State, Missouri, and Alabama. They had four games where they went over 200 yards rushing as a team, including over 300 against Vandy and over 400 yards rushing against Ole Miss. And to frame the whole thing up, as good as the running game was, they only had two games where they went over 200 yards passing. But even more telling regarding the lack of balance, five games where they were held under 100 yards passing, which was a reason they finished the year with only five wins. And here's one in that bowl game. They're going out the left side. They ran behind this left side, that offensive line, all day in this particular game. And uh, there's a couple things you notice. They split it. Corner misses. He runs through the safety. Big run for a first down. Um, you know, again, there are a lot of these plays where you can watch this mesh point of the quarterback running back and, and try to guess, okay, is he reading something? Some are more obvious and without being in the huddle or in the meeting room, I don't necessarily always know if it's straight give or read on some of these, but we can definitely look at how it's blocked. And again, it's zone steps against a three-man defensive front. A couple of things I noticed though, it's sort of isolating three defenders, okay, two on the line of scrimmage and that linebacker, okay, so those three defenders kind of isolating them against three blockers, and they're going, hey, we're just going to bet in this zone scheme. If we can get numbers like three on three, we're going to run behind it because we have confidence. So watch how they block it. Center snaps, he's taking the nose, trying to get his head to the left, you know, take him head up, or at least get leverage around to his left shoulder, the left shoulder of the center. Guard tackle are technically, I think, what is a combo up to that play side linebacker right there. And what happens is it's pretty simple. Center takes the nose, 
tackle winds up getting inside leverage on the uh, tackle. And so then it's run right behind that left guard who's going to step up right here on that play side linebacker. And here comes the hole, and there it is. Okay, so the left tackle's block is huge. He's just clearing it out. Center is huge. Got the nose inside, and there's your hole right here. And as you see, the guard's in it. That silver helmet's in it. I'm following him as a uh, running back. You're going to follow him. Now, one thing that's interesting, they corner blitzed on this side. The ball was on the left hash, or near it anyway. And so he felt like he's boundary corner, and he's corner blitzing, firing. And watch, the receiver sees this. I can't block him. And he's like, you're not going to let him know, but he's pointing, actually pointing at the corner, say, hey, he's coming. And you don't have somebody to account for him in the blocking scheme because the up back on this side is coming to take care of the backside defensive end where that end man can't run this play down from the backside. So the hole's there. The guard has stepped up on that linebacker, but now we got a corner who has stepped into the hole, unblocked, we're run, running right at him. And I've said this a lot in these films. If you're an SEC running back, you got to make him miss every time, over him or through him, one or the other. And look, it's just a big old wide hole. That offensive line has cleared it out. Back is in there one-on-one -on -one against a corner, and the corner never even gets a finger on him. I mean, didn't even, he's stepping into the hole, unblocked, not only misses a tackle, just steps in there and looks at him and never even touched him. A really poor job by the corner. And then this, you know, this is a safety coming up right here. We're going to meet him and stop him for a first down. And again, a running back's going to run him through uh, and break that tackle, take three defenders across the first down stick. Really physical running game. Here's one I think you're reading if you're the quarterback. Um Again, it looks like it. Don't know the call, but I'm looking at his eyes and looking at the way it's blocked. And I think they are treating this like a four-man front, even though this defender is sort of removed. He's out here a good bit, but I think they're treating this like four and two against uh, four wide receivers in sort of a man-free uh, man look, something to, to that effect. So four and two, if you got nickel personnel, it means there's a safety out here somewhere, which I'm pretty sure there is. We just can't see him on screen. Here's what I say. It looks like read. When you snap it, they're taking that guy with his hand down there with the tackle and trying to turn him this way outside so as to make room for this give. Again, we're just kind of manning up. There's a combo happening here, center left guard up to the linebacker, similar to the last play. Left tackle is going one-on-one -on -one against that. And I think what you're doing is reading that end man on the line of scrimmage, which you're treating him that way as unblocked. If he were to fly down inside right here, I think you got a chance for the quarterback to keep the ball right here, and it's either keep it and run or RPO, you know, one or the other. But if he stays outside or if I feel like he's too far outside on alignment, I'm going to give. Now, how does the end play it? He's coming down there like sort of crashing right at the mesh point. Now, he, he's not lateral this way. He's sort of upfield right at the mesh point. And I think slow playing it. And I think really, too, again, as I said, kind of he's sort of removed to begin with out here on the hash. It may even be a pre-snap read for the quarterback that unless he flies down inside, I'm giving this football because you have what you want. Again, center takes care of nose, tackles there. Now we got this big hole created back here for the back to get past the line of scrimmage with the guard up on the linebacker. And this time we got a block on the outside as well. And out we go. So just uh, zone blocking and being more physical up front.
Here's another one out the backside, but it's blocked a little differently. As we said, you know, there's a lot in this game for Kentucky. They kind of lived on the left hash uh, into that boundary. And this one's a little different. This is a little bit more like uh, just running power. Now, it may be a read involved. Again, you know, could be. It has that look with a fourth on the line of scrimmage. Quarterback's going to snap it, and you can tell mesh point, and I'm looking here in man line of scrimmage. But you're also pulling backside guard or, or yeah, I mean, it's pulling the right guard to the left and pulling back in there and leading this run with a linebacker and an up back. Um, excuse me, with a lineman and an up back. And in this case, you know, you look again how it's blocked back there where they're coming from. Uh, different from those other plays we saw. Again, three-man front, you got a nose, and now you've got an inside shade on that defensive lineman here, the, the defensive tackle inside shoulder of the tackle. So they're going to block this down and push it this way as opposed to those other zone blocking where we you know, block them to the outside. Just going to use where he is to our advantage, and in this case, boom, hit him, drive him this way. Uh, center left guard or up on the nose up to the linebacker which I believe is going to be backside linebacker and play side you've got guard pulling finding the first one outside tight end pulling finding the linebacker inside play side linebacker boom those two blocks happen and there it is so you get everything washed down here you get pullers that pull and wash everything outside and so there is your hole. Now, it looks elementary when you slow it down. When you think about it, it's all these big bodies running full speed in about a second and a half to make it happen. It's pretty impressive uh, how consistent their run game was. Here's direct snap on the goal line. And this was a thing for them throughout the year. And why not? You know, show the defense something different. Don't waste time on a handoff. You know, you look too at how they've got the formation set. It's, you know, the, the five linemen, two tights on one side on a line of scrimmage and up back, and then another tight up back too. So it's a big heavy package, only one receiver and quarterback kind of splitting out here to see if you can draw a defense, make them think. Blocking everything, zone back this way, up back, come out, kick out the end man line of scrimmage, just get them to the goal line and you're in. Here's more of that running to the left. This time it kind of splits out the backside of what they're reading right here. And uh, again, the reason I say read, I think it's pretty obvious. You know, you look on alignment, okay? This is uh, four wides. You look on alignment, that play side defensive tackle on a three-man front is actually head up or inside of the offensive tackle. So on the snap, they're anticipating this linebacker coming up and treating him like the in man on line of scrimmage if he steps up there. And that's what happens. And I'm pretty sure you can tell that his eyes are on, excuse me, I'll draw it a little better, are on this linebacker. Going to watch him and see what his movement is. Quarterback's meshing, reading. So we're blocking down that way. He's stepping up, but he's slow to get there and he stays to the outside. And with that, you know, he's not, um, my picture moved here. He's not, you know, flying in here to try to cut this off or going inside. I think if he does, again, quarterback probably pulls it and runs or you have RPO. But because he's sort of hanging out here by himself on the in-man line of scrimmage, uh, it's a give. You know, it turns into a give. So I think it is a read involved. And the reason you pop this one, again, is you're dependent on those bigs up front. 
and they're comboing this time right guard and center are comboing center up to linebacker and you get a nice one-on-one -on -one block by the tackle okay so way more physical right here on the edge defender guard center have this knocked up into the linebacker really well and so there you split it and there's nobody to the next level because one linebacker is blocked another is to the outside a quarterback accounted for him and if he gets in here and it takes um you know again it's like three on three football and we're depending on winning that every single time and you really saw that a bunch in their run game depending on those big guys up front for kentucky because of their offensive line kentucky was tough to defend anytime you're that physical and consistent in one area of the game you're going to have a chance to be pretty good. Really was just a shame that in spite of their offensive line and run game, they couldn't hit more explosive plays in their pass game, at least consistently, to maybe pull off an upset or two. And at the end of the day, that lack of balance in the pass game is what held them back in 2020. Do me a favor and subscribe and like. Thank you. And I'll see you on the next one. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.